Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links, and see where it takes us. And this also happens to be our two-year anniversary episode. So, probably won't have anything special for you unless we get a random article that's special. Which, (laughs) the odds are stacked against us there. (laughs) (laughs) So, John, what do you have for us today? Uh, Lucrezia Borgia. It's a 1940 film. Uh... From Italy. It's a historical film directed by Hans Heinrich, starring Isapola, Friedrich Benfer, and Carlo Ninci. It portrays the life of Lucrezia Borgia, who lived from 1480 to 1519 and was one of a number of Italian films set during the Renaissance. Hmm. So, uh, just kind of an Italian historical fiction type thing. <laughs> Okay. Interesting. Yeah. But that's like pretty much all they uh, tell me about the plot. <laughs> like, if you want to know about Lucrezia Borgia, don't go to the article about the movie <laughs> about Lucrezia Borgia. Okay. Well, I have Turritella, which is mm-hmm. a genus of. No. Medium-sized no. sea snails. Oh. Whoa. Okay. You built. Uh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it's still, you know, a thing that there's probably hundreds of thousands of. Yes. But at least it's not moths. Wow. We've really come a long way in two years. <laughs> the random button has stopped giving us Indian films and moths, and instead giving us Italian films and slugs. <laughs> so yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> so we are once again stuck between a film and a creature. <laughs> yep. And uh, as far as um, this thing, you've probably seen these shells on the beach before. It's those really long, twisty ones. Yeah, like the Like the straight, but like spiraled. Right. But like really long. So that's what we're looking at here. Um... But yeah, I don't know which one seems more promising or enticing. Neither? To be honest. <laughs> Is the answer neither? Because I think it might be neither. Um, I think it's really a matter of <clears throat> what we can get to faster. Mm. Um, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Lucrezia Borgia had a movie made about him. I don't know how many movies have been made about snails. Mm. Yeah. What about what about that snail though? Does, it, does, <laughs> does that snail have any sort of like culinary use or anything? Uh, doesn't look like it. Okay. Um, um. Yeah. Not. I mean, it just no, looks like no. one of those little dudes that just. You know what though? We're gonna go to the snail. 
okay? Because we get we get films all the time. That's true. All the time. <laughs> and this this sounds almost like it's like a delicacy, and I'm I'm curious to see. Hmm. Well, how did you say it was spelled? Uh, T U R R I T E L L A. Yeah, doesn't that sound like? I mean, maybe I'm just thinking of Nutella, but <laughs> it, it has a uh, the ring of like uh, some kind of delicacy. It's it looks like it could be a delicacy. Look at the shells of this thing. It looks like it could be an ice cream cone. <laughs> That's a good way to market it, probably. Yeah. Be like you just hold it and then you just suck it right out the. There you go. The hole. And you just hope that what is living in there happens to be edible too. <laughs> Yep. I imagine it tastes mostly like other shellfish. I mean, you know, you can only have so many uh, slimy little things. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> there are two sections to this article, it looks like. There are the valid species of turritella and the invalid species <laughs> of turritella. Wouldn't invalid be, uh, like, just not even a thing? Like, they they should not be. <laughs> I mean, like, I feel strictly like speaking, based on the words. So why would you, like, invalid, like, homo sapiens sapiens? That's a pretty invalid turritella. <laughs> like, what do, you, what do you mean invalid? Isn't it doesn't just something else then? Why is it here? <laughs> it's not like fool's gold. <laughs> you know, let's lump it in with the regular gold. Yeah, it says uh, valid species within the genus are listed below, and fossil species are marked with a dagger, the little character that looks like a cross. And invalid are species assigned to Turritella that were brought into synonymy with other taxa. Okay, well, the thing about this that's curious to me is that there are some turritellas in the invalid category that were formerly turritellas that are still turritellas. Is that because <laughs> those are up there in the in the valid territory? Hmm. Let me see. Yeah, that's kind of weird that one could show up in both places. If I see turritella coclea. That's on there multiple times. That's a valid and invalid one. Seems like it would have to fall on one or the other. And yet... <clears throat> nope. Arosincta is also one that is around a lot. Hmm. And so is Singolifera. So I guess people found these things. They got all excited. They thought they found something new, and they really just found extensions of ones hmm. that were already found, classified, etc. Okay, so you're saying like they found one, they thought, mm -hmm. oh, this is a new species. But they're like, well, it's really kind of this species. Yeah, but it just looks it weird. It just looks a little different. It looks weird. It's not a different thing. Yeah. So, it's the same thing. Okay. So that makes a little more sense. Now, the thing about this is, is that, like, some of these things are obviously other forms of Turritella, but some of these things that are invalid eventually become entirely different animals. And 
I really wish I knew more of my Latin so I could figure out like what would be a very uh, which one of these is like the most egregious invalid <laughs> classification like yeah, uh, like Glyptozeria yeah Opulenta yeah that sounds like that doesn't just sound like oh this might be another similar shellfish that's like this sounds like a completely different creature like, yeah. entirely. Ooh. Yumatula Arctica. That one sounds promising. That's a really good... Well, it's, it's one of the invalid ones. Uh, somebody thought uh, Turritella Costulata in 1842 was actually... They, they thought it was a Turritella. Oh, and it was actually an Emulata Arctica. Which was found out by Morch in 1857. <laughs> Morch. Morch with a slash Morch zero. 1857. Morch 1857. <laughs> That's a good, <laughs> good time, good month. Morch. Well, do you want to go to Yuma Yumatula Arctica. Yeah, let's let's check that out and see if. Oh no. Um. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, that's a, this is a very small article. Oh, it's a sea snail. Yeah. A gastropod. Was the other one a gastropod? I don't Oh, it was. Oh, was it? A okay. marine gastropod mollusk. All right, well. This one, however, does not seem to be so mollusky. Mollusky? Mollus. Mollusk. 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 This is from the Northwestern Atlantic Ocean, European waters, including the Mediterranean Sea and the Gulf of Maine. So, the Arctica part. Right. But, yeah, I guess it makes sense. Because you have the Arctic and the Antarctic. Hmm. Oh, I mean, we could, uh... Hmm. I mean, I guess we... Ooh, there is a link to Morch. Morch? <laughs> there is a link to Morch? In the in, info box, there's a link to Morch. Morch! Hey! What's up, Morch? Let's go to Morch. <laughs> Let's see what's up with Morch. Not to be confused with Mork. <laughs> it's the Mork of a good man. There's old Mork. And then there's old Clausen Mork. Otto Mork, Peter Mork, Olaf Mork, Klaus Mork. Class Mork. It's class act, that Klaus Mork. Olaf Mork Hansen. So, they all share uh, very similar um, commonality. Uh, mm. Norwegian is the place they are from. Or, or Norway, I guess. Norwegian say. is the place <laughs> where they are from, yes. <laughs> they are all Norwegian from the land of Norway. <laughs> but uh Ooh, this uh Otto Andreas Losen Mork was uh he was a malacologist. Was that the guy that we're looking for then? Maybe he is. I don't know. I don't know what a malacologist is. 
Let's go to him because it sounds like the right thing. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, well, here's the thing. It's either that or he's one of the Klauses. <laughs> by uh, process of elimination, we have a football manager, a, two politicians, and an actor, and then a discam- disambiguation of a full name. <laughs> and <laughs> there can't be that many. <laughs> can't be that many Klaus Morks. Uh, but, yeah, then, yeah, that's it. So I think that has to be the... Mork we're looking for. All right, Otto Andreas Losen Mork. It's also he also has four names. Yeah. He has four <laughs> names. He's got to be a scientist. Oh dear. Biologist, malacologist, lived in Sweden, Denmark, and France. Okay. Um. So he described two things. Two taxa <laughs> are named after him. Total. One that doesn't have a link on Wikipedia, one that does. Turbo Nilla Morky. Ooh. Well, he did describe a couple other ones. Right. So he at least found some, even if he didn't get the taxa named after him. But these don't look familiar. So, let's see. Well, he did discover something called... Zanatidae, also known as the true glass snails. Because Umatula Arctica was the one that was... Linked us here. Yeah. So... I think, unless there's more than one Mork. (laughs) Can there be more than one Mork describing sea snails? Could there be (laughs) multi-Mork? Well, Eric, our Mork (laughs) is certainly cut out for us. (laughs) I we guess have missed the mork on this one. I guess you could say we'll be morking for the weekend. For the meek end? Oh. No. Um anyway, we should we should choose a uh, uh direction. Hmm. We could find out what a malacologist is. True. We could find out what a Denmark is. <laughs> or we might want to look into what a true glass snail would be. Mm. I feel like it either lives in a glass shell, it is transparent itself, or it really likes to sit on windows. It's mm. one of the three. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I mean, we can go to Zantaday and see. Zantaday! What's Zantaday? It's a snail! Who would have thought? It is not made of glass <laughs> case alright this one is the true glass snail um, it's a family of rather small air breathing land snails terrestrial palmonate gastropod mollusks in the super family Zonotoidea the super family <laughs> okay uh, oh, Zantidae. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, hold on. Zantidae is the only family in the super family Zonatoidea. So, why is it a super family? It's just a regular family. <laughs> why? Yeah, why would Zonatoidea be the super family when it's the only family of this 
Yeah, I mean, look, look, look down here, too. It really doesn't make sense. There's a whole tree. There's a cladogram, which is a tree that shows the phylogenetic relationships of this family to others. Um, and you can see that in the limacoid clade, there is a couple of different offshoots. But of the limacoid clade... Oh, I see. Wait. Maybe I understand. Wait, no, I don't. There's no reason for it to exist if it's the only offshoot. It's the same... Oh, there's another part of the tree. Um, Staphordioidea has a subfamily. Staphordidae. And that's the also one. yeah, but it's 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 also like at the same level because what I'm seeing is, is they have this staggered so strangely like this is all all of these are coming out essentially of the limacoid clade like the Zonotoidea family comes directly from the limacoid clade if you follow that line from the limacoid clade there's no other. There aren't any other, like, names. You just keep going from bracket to bracket of blank space until you get to Xanatoidia, and that's kind of why I'm thinking maybe that's why it has to be that far down on the chart. Like, there's something that makes these things weird enough that they end up not being... that they end up being their own thing, but they're not special enough to be super their own thing. But they're more their own thing than the other things at that level, so they become super their own thing. So they become a super family. And uh, that's the most I can pseudoscience right now. <laughs> Maybe if I read a little bit more here, it'll tell me. Okay, well, here's some more. We got the family's type genus is Zonates, established by Pierre Denis de Montfort in 1810. This family has no subfamilies. That makes sense. If you're, you know, okay, yeah. Like, I feel like, like, if there's no other sub things, it should all be on the earliest offshoot. Still, um. Distribution. They are in the Western Palearctic. So they like it sort of cold. Yeah, that's uh, uh well the, the, the spiral heliciform shells of these snails are flattened in shape with a very low spire. So they don't have a very high swirly stare. Uh the shell is perforate or umbilicate. The lip of the aperture is simple, lacking thickened margin. These shells are more or less transparent, as if made of glass, hence the popular name, glass snails. But you can't really tell in the picture. Yeah, you really can't. But uh, that's, that's why they're called that. I really wish that was a little more evident. Like, they could have held this snail up to the light or something. Or found a different snail. Yeah. There has to be better examples of snails. It's kind of a letdown, really. Like, yes, okay, it's a shell. Like, yes, light can go through shells. 
Whoop de doo. <laughs> if it looks like glass, maybe go to an effort to tell us about how or why. Oh, some snails in genera with this within this family create and use love darts as part of their mating behavior. In this family, the member the number of haploid chromosomes lies between 21 and 25, and also lies between 31 and 35. But other values are also possible. Which, oh, by the way, they live in damp places under stones. Do they? Wow. <laughs> That's what it says. I, I know it's hard to believe, but it's right there. It's in the article. They tell you. All right. So Google Image has our backs, and Thank they you. have much better images of true glass snails. You can clearly see that it is a transparent type of shell. All you got to do is, you know, clean it up and hold it up to the light a little bit. <laughs> a snail can still be in there. Like, Google Images will prove that to you. This thing is really clear, though. Like, mm-hmm. legit. You can even see, there's a really good image, probably like seventh or so image in, on Google Image Search, if you just type in true glass snail, where you can see the snail's still in there. Mm-hmm. You can see him living in there. You can see the little body in there. But it shows you how the snail shell looks comparatively to you know, the snail being in it versus the snail being out of it. Yeah. Really, uh, really cool little thing, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we know where we have to go now, though. Love darts. <laughs> uh, we have to go to love darts. Hmm. Okay. The image on the side is kind of interesting here. Okay, images of snails. So I'm guessing that snails are the ones doing most of this love darting. Uh, love dart is a sharp, calcareous or chitinous dart with some hermaphroditic land snails and slugs create. Oh, it's also known as a gypsabellum. Hmm. Gypsabellum. Gypsabellum. Take your pick. Love darts are made in sexually mature animals only and are used as part of the sequence of events during courtship. <laughs> oh. So snails court each other. Mm-hmm. So they do that. a little dance. <laughs> this is uh, before actual mating takes place. Darts are quite large compared to the size of the animal. Hmm. In the case of the semi-slug genus Parmarian, the length of a dart can be up to one-fifth that of the semi-slug's foot. Wow. And the process of using love darts in snails is a form of sexual selection. Prior to copulation, each of the two snails or slugs attempts to shoot one or more darts into the other snail or slug. What? There is no organ to receive the dart. What? This action is more analogous to a stabbing. What? Or to being <laughs> shot with an arrow or fletchette. This is like taking Cupid to... A really real <laughs> stupid extreme. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the dart does not fly through the air to reach its target, however. Instead, it is fired as a contact shot, which has a link. Uh, <laughs> okay, so the love dart is not a pineal stylet. <laughs> 
<laughs> In other words, this is not an accessory organ for sperm transfer. The exchange of sperm between both the two land snails is a completely separate part of the mating progression. Nevertheless, recent research shows that the use of the dart can strongly favor the reproductive outcome for the snail that is able to lodge a dart in its partner. This is because mucus on the dart introduces a hormone-like substance that allows far more of its sperm to survive. Huh. Uh, love darts, also known as shooting darts or just as darts, are shaped in many distinctive ways, which have which vary considerably between species. What all the shapes of love darts have in common is their harpoon-like or needle-like ability to pierce. What the hell is wrong with snails? I don't understand what's going on here. <laughs> that they. All right, girl, I'm gonna get with you, but. Let me just shoot you with a big arrow first, and then everything is going to be real good then. <laughs> like, okay. Why Why are you doing this, though? Like, <laughs> that's... This, this article is actually really in- intricate, though, because it starts out with the uh, mating dance of the snails and how they begin their ritual. So they start with the dance... Then they shoot the dart, and then they mate. Yes, I think that's the basic gist. There are some actually rather artistic-looking pictures here, which I suppose amount to nothing less than snail porn, but all things being equal, I guess I kind of understand why the darts are necessary. I mean, look at the snail for a second. How, how are those things supposed to get on top of each other that's true. without like having some sort of anchor? And you got to figure... The snail is mostly shell. Yeah. So getting a dart into the other... I mean, I guess... It's, I it's, guess it's talking about the soft bit, though, right? It's kinda, yeah. Yeah. Like, that... I mean, but, like, getting it, like, to that small of a, an area... Right. That's exactly what I mean. Like, but then again, it does say it's through contact shooting, not through the air, like an actual arrow, but... Hmm. Well, you can kind of see a love dart in that first picture there. Yeah. Where it says, uh, courting snails in Ireland, the one on the right has fired a love dart, has a fired love dart, rather, in its embedded body. Yeah, I think that. Which, that little thing sticking out, I guess. Like near the one antenna thing? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Which isn't actually how I expected that to go down. I thought there was going to be like, because you see the you see the dance down here where the snails are all like mm-hmm. you know, kissing and so forth, and it looks like very like that would be the time you'd see a contact uh, a love dart deployed. Whereas the snail in the picture, it looks like it's been shot in the neck. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it looks like somebody like yeah. stabbed it in the head. Yeah, that's like a maneuver where you like come up from behind and just yeah, just that's like a psycho knife move. right that's into not... the side of the neck. Wow. Go for the jugular. So, um, yeah. Um, Apparently, that's not weird though. There is a uh, line here in under the uh, mating dance section that says that the darting can sometimes be so forceful that the dart ends up buried in the internal organs <laughs> of the snail. It can also happen that a dart will pierce the body or the head entirely and protrude on the other side. Wow. 
I guess when you're a snail, the head and the brain are not really as important <laughs> still, though. It's pretty gruesome. Yeah. Okay, so both snails fire darts into each other. Right. And then they both exchange sperm to each other. I guess. That's what that's what it's saying here. That's they okay. exchange sperm. Then it know. goes back and forth. It's a very strange way, but But I guess you know, they they <laughs> do they do whatever they need to do. Yeah. Including but not I mean, limited to edge hey, weaponry. <laughs> if you know, you you're going for uh reproduction of your species, having both partners produce offspring would be uh that's highly true. beneficial <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh doubling your output and you, there and if you run the risk of just going through the motions and accidentally shooting <laughs> somebody in the head then yeah yeah if you're uh, you, uh you may need to have that sort of you know reproductive security because yeah. you're dealing you're playing with fire <laughs> your mating ritual involves stabbing the other person you yeah. might want a backup plan. yeah <laughs> Yeah, to say the least, <laughs> that might be that might be a good move. Like just from an evolutionary sort of uh, stance on things. Oh my god. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. So beyond that, the dart is shot with some variation in force and with considerable oh, inaccuracy. Oh no. Oh <laughs> Such no. that one third of the darts that are fired in cornu aspersum either fail to penetrate the skin. Or miss the target altogether. They're contact <laughs> shot, shots. You're shooting snarrow shooting snails in the, the barrel. <laughs> yeah, you would think there would be... What are you talking about? How okay, you... well, to be fair, snails have only very simple visual systems and cannot see well enough to use vision to help aim the darts. Now that is a cruel joke. They have <laughs> darts that serve no purpose, sometimes can kill things... And they but, can't even see where they're shooting. Yep. And they still find it necessary to do this. <laughs> they're horribly, horribly crippled. And they're trying to fire weapons at each other. At point blank range <laughs> and still miss. Like, I don't... What It does not... I understand that it serves a purpose on like a hormonal level. Like It's almost like a shot. Like, kind yeah, of it's, like, a, it's almost like giving your partner like a... Like a fertility shot or something. Yeah. Although, with instead of like a needle, you're stabbing them with a harpoon. It's like dousing. It's like dousing a harpoon in Viagra, tying a <laughs> blindfold around your eyes, and saying, "Get ready, here we go!" From three feet away from somebody. Like that's that's a little obscure. It's a little weird. Yeah, it's a it's a wonder that these snails have survived so long they, they accidentally hunt each other all the time so <laughs> it is very interesting that they've managed to you know make a go of it like evolutionarily it's, yeah I mean it's odd that evolution has favored these traits in these snails I guess just goes to show you that biology is real weird man <laughs> it's like hey whatever works if, if you're getting I guess. if you're getting offspring out of this then go for it I guess there are some really disturbing photos of uh, images of love darts. If you scroll down to the species variability section, you can see all the different kinds of shapes, oh, wow. including the cross sections. Wow. Some of them look like Whoa. knives. Oh. Some of them look like they would hurt a human <laughs> because they are like four. Ed they're like there's one that's like a quadruple oh, edged knife. Like. <laughs> yeah, some of these are like. Ugh. 
they actually look very bloody and painful. Some of them are like sickles. Some of them are like <laughs> drill bits, but like <laughs> screwed up. That is that that last one. My goodness, what is going on there? There's one that's just a giant cone. <laughs> this is a big spike. Yeah, the, these uh, cross sections looks like, I don't know, family crest symbols or something. Like Which something from Game of Thrones. Too yeah. far off from what they actually are. No, <laughs> but they're still horrifying. Yeah. Kind of like the clans in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Some of these are like super curved too. They're like those... Uh, I don't know. Leather needles are like a fish yeah. hook or something. Yeah, they're really crazy. There's some really crazy shapes on these things. They definitely vary, that's for sure. Yeah, I love the ones that, like, they don't even try. They're just like, you know what? I'm just going to go with the big, the biggest diameter we can get, and it's just going to be a solid cone. No fancy, uh,. <laughs> curvature, no arrowhead, nothing. So I wonder what actual size these things are. Because that one picture made it look like it was at least probably an inch long or so. Mm-hmm. Like, it's visible. Like, to the human eye, naked visible. Mm-hmm. Hey, Cupid Connection. Some writers have commented on the parallel between the love darts of snails and the love darts fired by the mythological being Cupid known as Eros in Greek mythology. It is even possible that there is a connection between the behavior of the snails and the myth. Malacologist, a.k.a. mollusk expert, Ronald Chase of McGill University, said about the garden snail Cornu aspersum, I believe the myth of Cupid and his arrows has its basis in this snail species, which is native to Greece. Oh. He added, the Greeks probably knew about this behavior because they were pretty good naturalists and observers. And in some languages, the dart that these snails use before mating is known as an arrow. For example, in the German language, it is called a Liebesfeil, <laughs> or love arrow. Hmm. And in the Czech language, it is Siplaski, which means arrow of love. So, yeah. Now, it is kind of interesting to see some of the uh, uh, evolution that these things have gone through. Because of the presence of darts in many super families, it seems likely that love darts appeared during the early evolution of snails and that the ancestors of these uh, these particular snails that are around today possess darts already. They're not a new evolution. They're, mm. they, they've been around a while, which is kind of understandable. They're sort of prehistorically horrifying yeah. <laughs> in their own right. Like, um, they're, they're, they're a bunch of, you know, T-Rex teeth for love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> during evolution, though, darts appear to have been lost secondarily after they had evolved and been functional. Vestigial darts, ones that only exist in a rudimentary condition, occur in the family Sagdidae and in many Helioscoidea. The uh, surrounding organs have also degenerated and become non-functional. The sarcobellum is a fleshy or cuticle-coated paplia, which is considered to be a degenerated, previously dart-bearing organ. 
So, they are something from the ancient world. They're not coming into existence, and that, at the very <laughs> least, is sort of comforting. Yeah. Maybe it's possible that, like, the other snails at the time that weren't doing this were just dying off, and they're like, you know what? We need that extra injection. I don't care what the risk is. Like, we got to get... We got to get... <laughs> yeah. We got to. We got to do something. Man, though. What a weird... What a weird thing. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of really interesting <laughs> avenues we can pursue from this article. Yes, there are. We have weaponry. We have slugs. We have vestigial things. We have sexual things. We have hormones. We have harpoons. We have, <laughs> like, mythology. We have shapes and geometry. I mean, we really <laughs> struck the mother load on this one. We have yeah. venoms. We can go to poisons. <laughs> it's true. Hmm. Yeah, there's almost too many options. It's a little overwhelming. Hmm. And you know what you need whenever you get overwhelmed? A little, little Cupid. Hmm. A little Valentine's Day. <laughs> a little Valentine's Day visit from the, the cherub of love itself. <laughs> yeah, how appropriate. That we landed on this article, the on the on the week of post eve of Valentine's, Valentine's uh, post eve. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Should we go Cupid? Let's do it. Let's click Cupid. Right. We're going to Cupid. Cupid, from the Latin Cupido, meaning torpedo. I'm kidding. It means desire. Uh, in the is the god of well desire, uh, erotic love, attraction, and also affection. He is often portrayed as the son of the love goddess Venus and the war god Mars. Uh, hence the arrow. That does make sense. He is also known in Latin as amor or love. <laughs> His Greek counterpart is eros. And he he looks. A little strange in this statue on the right hand side. He's just kind of like, yeah, I got this. Kind of. He's not really it. pointing his bow. He's not like anywhere. Aiming. Yeah. Nor does he have like an arrow in his or or even a quiver for that matter. He's just this naked dude not wings. Even, he's holding it the wrong way too. Like not even like he's the wrong way, the wrong way. <laughs> not like he's pointing it at himself. He's holding it in a fashion that like he couldn't do anything with this right now if he wanted to. Yeah, he's not holding the string. He's Got There's one no hand on top of the bow, <laughs> one hand in the middle of the bow, and the middle of the bow where the arrow would normally be pointing out of it is like sticking right towards his inner arm. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know, I gotta wonder if he knows what he's doing. You do have to wonder sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, though he is generally portrayed as an interesting, they're going over to uh, the arrow's name now. Uh, he's generally portrayed as a slender-winged youth in classical Greek art during the Hellenistic period. He was increasingly portrayed as a chubby boy. Oh. <laughs> and that's probably what most people kind of think of. But during this time, his iconography acquired the bow and arrow that represent his source of power. A person or even a deity who is shot by Cupid's arrow is filled with uncontrollable desire. 
in myths, Cupid is a minor character who serves mostly to set the plot in motion. He is a main character only in the tale of Cupid and Psyche. When wounded by his own weapons, he experiences the ordeal of love. Although other extended stories are not told about him, his tradition is rich in poetic themes and visual scenarios, such as Love Conquers All and the retaliatory punishment and or torture of Cupid. And he often appears in multiples as the Amours, or Amorini, in later terminology of art history, the equivalent of the Greek Eros. Uh, Cupids are a frequent motif of both Roman art and later Western art of the classical tradition. And in 15th century, the iconography of Cupid starts to become indistinguishable from the Pudo? Pudo? Pudo. What's a Pudo? <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen that word before. But, um. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, bouncing over to Pudo. Because I thought it said Pluto at first. And I was like, <laughs> that's a totally different god. Uh, it is a figure in a work of art depicted as a chubby male child, usually naked with some and sometimes winged. The fact that that was like a thing in art before Cupid became that thing <laughs> kind of weirds me out a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. So okay, so there was a whole thing of chubby naked man childs, and them Cupid became one of them. <laughs> yep. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, and. Cupid continued to be a popular figure in the Middle Ages when under Christian influence he often had a dual nature as heavenly and earthly love and in the Renaissance a renewed interest in classical philosophy endowed him with complex allegorical meanings in contemporary pop culture Cupid is shown drawing his bow to inspire romantic love often as an icon of Valentine's Day Hey, we did it. We could end this show on Valentine's Day. We can do that. Wait, can we do that? Yeah. Seems like... Yeah, Yeah. no, seems valid. Because, I mean, like, look how big this art. There's plenty to talk about on Cupid. Yeah. And then there's going to be plenty to talk about Valentine's Day for, too, I'm sure. Well, we know the origins of them. That's kind of probably pretty, pretty boring. Right? Like... He's actually the son of uh, Venus most of all of the time. In Latin literature, though, there is one fascinating note. He's not really made... There's no real reference to a father for him in Latin literature. Hmm. So, could be Vulcan. Could be... Could he be Vulcan? He could be fr- He could be the he kid has, of Vulcan. He has a little too much emotion to, to be, be the Vulcan. child of Vulcan. <laughs> Well, that's actually kind of funny because they did just say that he gets struck by one of his own arrows one time, mm. and he has to fall prey to what he rues on, r- like rains on other people. He, so you get the understanding that like, he doesn't actually know. Mm. <laughs> that's true. Maybe he's just completely, you know, oblivious to What's emotion going on? and everything, and he's just like, "All right, shooting everybody up." <laughs> like, I guess. <laughs> He might be. Like, he might be one of those gods that's just kind of like, you know what's interesting when I mess with these people and how they react? I'm just gonna go do go, go I'm just gonna go do that. That's 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 my jam now. But what is uh oh Vulcan is a 
being in yeah Latin yeah literature. he's a god uh vulcan as the husband of venus is the father of cupid huh. but then there's there's debate about it because cicero says that there are three cupids as well as three venuses the <laughs> first cupid was the son of mercury and diana the second of mercury and the second venus and the third of Mars and the third Venus. The, this last Cupid was the equivalent of Anteros or Counterlove, one of the Eros. The gods who embody aspects of love. The multiple Cupids frolicking in art are the decorative manifestation of these proliferating loves and desires. During the English Renaissance, Christopher Marlowe wrote of 10,000 Cupids in Ben Jonson's Wedding Mask, Himenei, a thousand several colored loves hop about the nuptial room. Gotta always one up the previous guy. Yep. You know one day you have one Cupids? Cupid. <laughs> no, 10,000 Cupids. What are you going to do about it? You're dead. This happened in the Renaissance. You, you can't... Well, I guess what, guys? I'm going to write a story. It's going to have one million of Cupids. <laughs> I'm going to write a story where what? everybody in the world is Cupid. How about that? What? <laughs> Billions of Cupids. No. That'll be cool. All right. It'll, it'll be Cupid. <laughs> so... Uh, Cupid is winged allegedly because lovers are flighty and likely to change their minds and boyish because love is irrational. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. That, that, okay. And they really thought about this. <laughs> they, they really invested some time into this, like, hmm, this okay. structure. Why if love would... was a being, uh, let's see. So it'd it'd have be to a, be a boy. Because they'd be an <laughs> idiot. <laughs> and then they'd be flighty because they'd be an idiot. <laughs> No, but it does it does make sense. Like it's like a good way to put people who are like, you know, first in love, like yeah. regardless of the love that you're talking about, you're talking about like people being really like like blissful to the point of absolute like like ridiculousness. Yeah. And that's and that's what like that that kind of captures that pretty <laughs> pretty decently. Like it's a good metaphorical vessel. Yeah. So he actually has Two different kinds of arrows. Yeah, I just saw that. Uh, one with a sharp golden point, and the other with a blunt tip of lead. <laughs> Which, uh, the, the, the second one's a little <laughs> less good for love. Yeah, <laughs> Cuba, could you give me one of those gold darts? Uh, I, don't, I don't want the lead dart, please. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd rather be in love than, you know, the dead from uh, lead poisoning. <laughs> That's probably better. Uh, a person wounded by the golden arrow is filled with uncontrollable desire. But the one struck by the lead feels aversion t and desires only to flee. And, and the also then die of <laughs> Yeah. And the use of these arrows is described by the Latin poet Ovid in the first book of his Metamorphoses. And when Apollo taunts Cupid as the lesser archer, Cupid shoots him with a go the golden arrow, but strikes the object of his desire, the nymph Daphne, with the lead and then trapped by Apollo's unwanted advances Daphne prays to her father the river god Peneus to who turns her into a laurel and uh, the tree sac sacred to Apollo it is the first of several unsuccessful or tragic love affairs for Apollo 
Oh, there's another variation where he has three arrows. Um, there's gold for a gentle smiting that is easily cured. And the more compelling silver and steel for a love wound that never heals. And apparently there's also uh, bees involved in his story. Um, there's a tale of him and the honey thief where he gets stung by bees when he tries to steal honey from a beehive. <laughs> now you know what they say about the Cupids and the bees. <laughs> that, uh, you know, that they, that, that the bees, the time when the bees hurt the Cupids <laughs> and sting them. Yep, that classic, classic phrase, you know, when the, <laughs> the spring comes around. Well, oh, oh, this gets weirder. Cupid and dolphins. Uh, Cupid's sometimes shown riding a dolphin in art. <laughs> On ancient Roman sarcophagi, the image may represent the soul's journey originally associated with Dionysian religion. A mosaic from the late Roman Britain shows a procession emerging from the mouth of the sea god Neptune, first dolphins and then seabirds, ascending up to Cupid. One interpretation of this allegory is that Neptune represents the soul's origin in the matter from which life was fashioned, with Cupid triumphing as the soul's desired destiny. Hmm. In other contexts, Cupid with a dolphin recurs as a playful motif, as in Garden Sanctuary at Pompeii that shows a dolphin rescuing Cupid from an octopus, or Cupid holding a dolphin. Dolphin, often elaborated, elaborated fantastically, might be constructed as a spout for a fountain on a modern-era fountain in the Palazzolo Vecchio. Uh, Palazzo Vecchio, Florence in Italy. Cupid seems to be strangling a dolphin. <laughs> Dolphins were often portrayed in antiquity as friendly to humans, and the dolphin itself could represent affection. Pliny records a tale of a dolphin at Puteoli carrying a boy on its back across a lake to go to school each day, and when the boy died, the dolphin grieved itself to death. In erotic scenes from mythology, Cupid riding the dolphin may convey how swiftly love moves, or the Cupid astride as sea beast may be a reassuring presence for the wild ride of love. A dolphin riding Cupid may attend scenes depicting the wedding of Neptune and Amphitrite, or the triumph of Neptune, also known as a marine thiasis. So the Cupid and Psyche story that was mentioned earlier. Um, it appears in Greek art as early as the 4th century BC, but the most extended literary source of the tale is the Latin novel Metamorphoses, which seems to have everything. Um, it is also known as the Golden Ass. And. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> by Apulia, Apulius in 2nd century AD. Um, it concerns the overcoming of obstacles to the love between Psyche, which is soul or breath of life, and Cupid, and their ultimate union in marriage. Um, so the fame of Psyche's beauty threatens to eclipse that of Venus herself, and the love goddess sends Cupid to work her revenge. Cupid, however, becomes enamored of Psyche and 
arranges for her to be taken to his palace. He visits her by night, warning her not to try to look upon him. Psyche's envious sisters convince her that her lover must be a hideous monster, and she finally introduces a lamp into their chamber to see him. Startled by his beauty, she drips hot oil from the lamp and wakes him. He abandons her. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, hot oil is not like a great way to wake up. <laughs> she wanders the earth looking for him and finally submits to the service of Venus, who tortures her. What? The goddess sen- then sends Psyche on a series of quests. Each time she despairs and each time she is given divine aid. On her final task, she is to retrieve a dose of Proserpina's beauty from the underworld. She succeeds, but on the way back, she can't resist opening the box in the hope of benefiting from it herself. Oh boy. Whereupon she falls into a torpid sleep. Cupid finds her in this state and revives her by returning the sleep to the box. Cupid grants her immortality so the couple can be wed as equals. And the story's neoplatonic elements and allusions to mystery religions accommodate multiple interpretations. And it has been analyzed as an allegory in, in light of folktale, marchin or fairy tale and myth. Often presented as an allegory of love overcoming death, the story was a frequent source of imagery for Roman sarcophagi and other extant art or antiquity. Since the rediscovery of Apuleius's novel in the Renaissance, the reception of Cupid and Psyche in the classic tradition has been extensive. The story has been retold in poetry, drama, and opera, and depicted widely in painting, sculpture, and various media. Hmm. Cupid did a lot of a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the uh, Greek mythology and even Roman mythology kind of feels familiar to like film right now. Yeah, Where like, just... there's like a lot of sim- same characters mm-hmm. and then just a whole bunch of different people writing all these different stories about them. It's like uh, ancient comic books or something. Yeah, basically. Seems like it's just kind of like weird to see the different interpretations yeah. through the different like you have your 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 Warner Brothers interpretation, uh, your, your your DC Warner Brothers collaborating interpretation <laughs> of uh, Cupid. Yeah. You got your, your Christian Bale Cupid. You got your <laughs> your Ben Affleck Cupid. You got your Birdman Cupid. <laughs> Got your uh, short-lived Val Kilmer Cupid. <laughs> yep, yep. The one with the nipples, you know. <laughs> that Cupid. Well, Shall we go to Valentine's Day? and? Uh, it's time to bring it home. Let's shoot this not-led arrow through the heart of Valentine's Day. Yeah. I guess. Let's <laughs> inject this with a little love arrow. Valentine's Day, also called St. Valentine's Day, or the Feast of St. Valentine. I like that one. Feast of St. Valentine? Nobody mentions that. (laughs) Everybody takes each other out for dinner, and nobody realizes they're supposed to be feasting. I would celebrate the heck out of that one. Right? 
Just, just another feast. Just yeah. another, it's it's the middle of winter anyway. Be a feast, you know? Right, but especially the ones in winter. Like, yeah, you should that's, really make that that's a when point. you've stocked up all your food. Right, you gotta be. Uh, Winter's about to end. <laughs> stuff's about to get a little bit warmer. Maybe yeah. you can indulge yeah, if like, you've made hey, it to this, this point. All this stuff's gonna go expired. We gotta eat it all. Yep. 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 It's an annual holiday celebrated on February 14th. It originated as a Western Christian liturgical feast day honoring one or more easy early saints uh, named Valentinus and is recognized as a significant cultural and commercial celebration in many regions around the world, although it is not a public holiday in any country. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Several martyrdom stories associated with the various Valentines that were connected to February 14th were added to later martyrologies, including a popular holographical account of St. Valentine of Rome, which indicated that he was imprisoned for performing weddings from soldiers who were forbidden to marry and for ministering to Christians who were persecuted under the Roman Empire. According to legend, during his imprisonment, St. Valentine healed the daughter of his jailer, Asterius, and before his execution, he wrote her a letter signed, Your Valentine, as a farewell. The day first became associated with romantic love with the circle of Geoffrey Chaucer in the 14th century when the tradition of courtly love flourished and 18th century England evolved into an occasion in which lovers expressed their love for each other by presenting flowers, offering confectionaries, and sending greeting cards known as valentines. In Europe, St. Valentine's keys are given to lovers as a romantic symbol and an invitation to unlock the giver's heart, as well as to children in order to war off epilepsy called St. Valentine's Mal- Malady. Valentine's Day draws symbols or Valentine's Day symbols that are used today include the heart-shaped outline, doves, and the figure of the winged Cupid. Since the 19th century, handwritten Valentines have given way to mass-produced greeting cards. St. Valentine's Day is an official feast day in the Anglican Communion as well as in the Lutheran Church. Many parts of the Ethan Eastern Orthodox Church also celebrate St. Valentine's Day, albeit on July 6th and July 30th, both both Valentine's Days. <laughs> Valentine's in July. <laughs> the former date, of course, though, honors the Roman Presbyterian... Pres- Roman Presbyter? <laughs> I don't know how you... I've heard I guess Presbyterians. if there's Presbyterians, then you could be a you, presbyter. <laughs> you can be a presbyter. I guess that's it. Uh, St. Valentine is honored on July 6th. July 30th is to honor the hero martyr Valentine, the Bishop of Interama. So, yeah, this is a lot older than I ever thought it was. I was always under the impression that it was like uh, invented in the 40s, you know, just to sell greeting cards. But people were celebrating Valentine's Day hundreds of years ago. And apparently there's... Multi- I thought there was one dude who was Valentine, yeah, Saint Valentine, but and that was it. And apparently, there's just like no, there's a, there's this whole yeah. mess of them, whole mess of Valentines. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Valentines. A lot of Christian martyrs were named Valentine. Um, yeah. So that's uh, <laughs> kind of surprising. It's very like, yeah, it's fascinating. But, like. They would just keep naming people Valentine. And they would keep happening to be martyrs. Yeah. <laughs> like, every single one without fail. Are you a Valentine? <laughs> you really good at your job? Good. Then you know when you're going to, like, put your head down on a stone and have it slopped. Just cut right off. Just have it cut right off. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if 
We need to dig too deep into Valentine's Day. I mean, we we, we know. uh, I guess, you know, we don't know as much about it as we thought, but I don't really think that what we don't know is going to affect (laughs) how it's carried out. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's... What we know is it used to be a feast, and it's named after tons of guys named Valentine. And then the English showed up, and they took away the feast part, and they made it worse. Yep. And they started giving each other cards, and now it's associated with love for some reason. (laughs) Which, I mean, there's very... Like, some of these stories are really quite tragic. I'm not entirely sure what they have to do with with love. Like... But, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, here it says... The celebration of St. Valentine did not have any romantic connotations until Chaucer's poetry about Valentines in the 14th century. So why isn't it Chaucer's Day or something? Like, he's the guy who <laughs> decided to make this this stuff romantic. Yep. So, I don't know. I guess we need to read up on my Chaucer. Yeah, I guess so. He, he, well, you have him to thank for Valentine's Day, as it is. Which is weird. Because yeah. he needs no credit for it. Like you don't hear about Chaucer's cards or Chaucer's chocolates even. Why isn't yeah. Chaucer's chocolates a thing? Like that'd be a good history lesson. Yeah. Why don't they put his poetry in uh, the cards too? I haven't read you his know? poetry. There may be very good reasons for that. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. Um, but yeah. So there you have it. From Turritella to Valentine's Day, we did it. We, made we didn't even try to. Nope. Nope. We really, really <laughs> didn't. We really lucked into that one. I don't quite know how we got here, but I think we ended up where we needed to be. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that now works. that you've celebrated Valentine's Day, now you know a little bit more. About what you've done. <laughs> it's a little bit stranger. Not sure what to make of it. But uh, next time, maybe let's all have a feast. Mm, indeed. That'd be good. That would be nice. Um, but for now... You can go ahead and uh, visit facebook.com slash podcast and give us a like and follow. And you can go to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can also find new episodes on our website, twc.erictoribio.com. And I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Manuel Romain for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. We just assume a lot of holidays are just what they think, what we think they are. Like people always go to Christmas and like, oh, it was Saturnalia, it was a big pagan ritual before. But like, (laughs) literally every holiday was super (laughs) weird before. Like, yeah, and like the thing is, like, like with Christmas at least. People like are like, oh yeah, I used to be pagan, but like, really, most of the things that we do on Christmas are because of uh, Charles Dickens. Yeah, like it's not <laughs> has nothing to do with the Bible or religion or even the Catholic Church. Like it's it's, it's straight up Dickensian. Like, yeah, like he's like, that's it. Hey, I think it'd be cool if all this stuff happened. What if the rich gave like, to the poor oh. on this day? Like, okay, what if we had trees and made a pine? Like. Well, why, why don't we just chop down trees and bring them into our house? That doesn't make any sense <laughs> at any other time of the year, and nobody else has done it, so eh, why not? Let's, let's, just, let's just do that. Let's just knock down little trees that we can manage to drag into our houses. So, 
I think what we can learn from this is we have authors to thank for the ways that we celebrate all of these holidays. That's the weirdest thing, but it's it entirely true. It has nothing true. to like, do with religion. It has nothing to do with ancient religion. It has everything to do with 18th century <laughs> English authors. <laughs> okay. All right. That's what we've learned. We figured it out. We cracked the code. Yep. The Da Vinci has nothing to do with it. He's way too far gone. Like We need more recent stuff than that. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, always a crazy learning experience here <laughs> on, on the Wikipedia Chronicles. Never thought a tiny sea snail would provide so much insight. Wikipedia keeps trying to throw us a curveball, but it's not going to get one over on us. We know where the good links are. 